Hello and welcome to the second episode of As Yet Unexplained Series 2. It is also the first part of our two-part look at the San Pedro haunting. In this series, we will be looking at some of the stories behind the most famous mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. This strange and often confusing collection of incidents received a lot of media attention back in the day. A haunting, poltergeist activity, attempted murder and full spectral apparitions are just the tip of the iceberg with this case. But with so many inconsistencies, can we really be sure of its authenticity? If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. The San Pedro Haunting This case is most definitely a strange one. And I remember seeing this unfold on shows like Sightings in the 1990s. One would watch the tale, and with every show and segment, it looked like we were slowly seeing this terrible story of a young woman and her children being plagued by unknown forces unfold right in front of us. Nowadays, we have access to so much data at our fingertips. For example, this story has been covered by numerous websites, TV shows, documentaries and books, all of which are available to us with the mere click of a mouse button. And herein lies the problem. Whilst researching this, I have come up with various dates and events that seem to contradict the narrative and sequence of events. In isolation, the odd, ill-remembered dates or sequences of events do not really matter. But unfortunately, it is not only a few dates. I was three quarters of the way through reading many articles from the 1990s through to present day, when all of a sudden I was introduced to an event that had not been mentioned in any other article thus far. It's not my job to point fingers or accuse anyone. After all, that's not why we're here. But I do wonder if this is selective memory of the participants or editorial decisions made by the article-slash-documentary writers. I will leave it to you to research that further and come to your own conclusions. It was November 1988 when 25-year-old Jackie Hernandez decided that her turbulent marriage was finally over. She was pregnant and brought her two-year-old son, Jamie, with her to the the turn-of-the-century bungalow located at the corner of 11th and Grande Street in San Pedro, California, and was working several different jobs to make ends meet. Jackie had married the father of her children, Al Hernandez, a few years earlier, but the marriage was always plagued with problems. Jacqueline Hernandez was born in 1963 in Saratoga Springs, New York, but had a difficult life. She was the victim of multiple assaults, and as a result, Jackie suffered from anxiety and depression. Maybe it was these experiences that made Jackie decide that she wanted to become a child psychologist, and Jackie was continuing her studies during her tumultuous time of upheaval 
and change. Jackie found this change in her circumstances to be quite liberating, and it enabled her to continue with her studies and dreams of graduating with a plume. But as is the case with many of these podcasts, things started to go awry. In the beginning, only a few strange occurrences would litter Jackie's life. These would start only a month after she moved in, and would initially make Jackie feel like she was never truly alone in the house, and that something was constantly watching her. This presence that would follow her from room to room would also, on occasion, be accompanied by strange noises, scratching and tapping at the walls, as well as disembodied voices that would emanate from empty rooms and the attic space. Jackie claimed in an interview that she was more afraid of people breaking into her home than of anything that resided within. Things slowly started to escalate for her, and the phenomena had branched out to include such feats as strange lights and dark shadows, pungent foul smells, and the moving of objects of their own volition. One night in November, Jackie's friend Darlene paid her a visit. The evening was going well until the pair of them heard an enormous crashing sound coming from the kitchen. When the pair went to investigate, they found that a large painting that Jackie possessed of a goose had been flung to the ground and was now sitting five feet away from the wall where it originally hung. Under the painting's original location sat a small table and resting upon that, standing upright, were the two nails that had been hammered into the wall to hang said painting. Sometime after this event, Jackie witnessed a water-like substance pour out from a light fitting. This is said to have lasted around five seconds and was never repeated throughout the haunting. Jackie's ex-partner's home burnt down, so it was decided that Al would move in with her she stated in an interview, uh, Then my ex-husband, who I well not ex yet, I was separated from him, from him uh, his house burned down and he temporarily moved in with me. When he moved in, or stayed with us, he wasn't going to stay more than a couple weeks, but when he did come to the house, that's when the first thing started happening. Jackie just recently acquired a cat, and she would say in an interview that, the cat was like a really mellow, mellow cat, but when it got into the house, it was, it was strange. It acted really peculiar. The cat was often observed rampaging through the house as if giving chase to an unseen prey. On many occasions, the animal was spotted chasing the many strange black shadows that would slowly creep around the house. Slow, that is, until the cat had spotted them and started to give chase. It would chase the shadow around the house, and it would, um, it would at times when it was, it would, it would uh, just act abnormal. It would follow the lights. It would chase the shadows. It would um, arch its back like cats do when they're really afraid of something. Jackie also stated that the cat had an aversion to leaving the house. Although when it finally did, it was most reluctant to re-enter again. After Al had moved into the property, that was when Jackie first noticed strange events occurring. 
you know, after that, after Al moved in, he only stayed away before I kicked him out, and then that's when things started happening. Jackie stated in an interview. Jackie was walking past her desk. At this time, Al was sitting up at it, and one of Jackie's friends, who was also present, was sitting on the couch. Jackie maintains that she was not close to the desk, but a couple of feet away from it. But nonetheless, the following happened. But it was as if this thing came tumbling at me. It was a pencil holder, and the pencils came out. And I knew I didn't touch it. And I remember looking at Al and him looking at me, and um, with this question, how did that happen, you know? At one point, Jackie thought she was hallucinating all these small incidents that kept occurring and attributed it to the fact that she was pregnant. The incident is considered by her to be the first, but by no means the last, as shortly after that initial experience, Jackie and her friend-slash-babysitter, Christina, were washing up the dishes when they noticed a blood-like viscous liquid slowly seeping out of the kitchen walls. Amid this latest manifestation of the phenomena, the household and visitors were to be treated to such experiences as coloured self-illuminating orbs, coloured mists, full-figure apparitions, and foul odours with no apparent cause. It would be one particular night in the summer of 89 that would shake Jackie to her core. Jackie's neighbour, Susan Castaneda, said that she was alerted to a frantic knock at her front door. And when she opened it, she was greeted with the sight of Jackie and her two children. They were terrified by something that had happened in the house. This event had been told at least two different ways by parties concerned. The first is as follows. Jackie was up in the living room watching episodes of The Honeymooners whilst the children slept in their shared bedroom. Jackie explained to Susan that a violet-coloured mist had entered the home via an open window in the living room and proceeded to hover for a few moments until it eventually dissipated. Her natural motherly instincts kicked in and Jackie decided to go and check on the children. Being three years old, her son Jamie was able to sleep on the top bunk of the bunk beds, whilst the four-month-year-old Samantha slept in a traditional baby crib within the same room. As Jackie looked into the room, she saw for the briefest moment the image of an old, very thin, grey man sitting on the bottom bunk. The ghostly image had its legs crossed, an expression on his face was one of evil and malevolence. The figure was only sighted very briefly, but Jackie said she saw it clear enough to say that he had a grey pallor and was wearing a red checkered shirt and high-water trousers, like an old American-style petrol station attendant. It was at this point that she gathered up the children and headed to Susan's home. Another version of this incident, which mainly comes from an interview that Jackie gave during the making of a documentary into the haunting, is as follows. 
One particular night, she was sleeping in the living room when all of a sudden, all the shutters that covered the window simultaneously flung open. Jackie states that as she was pregnant at the time with her daughter, Samantha, and in fact had not given birth to her yet, she was always waking up at midnight to use the toilet, regardless of whatever time she went to bed. It was one of these midnight trips to the toilet that Jackie was making her way through the bedroom, the only way of accessing the toilet, when she noted that she wasn't exactly walking through a dark room as they kept on a closet light, which cast a yellow-like light into the room. I saw him sitting on the bed and I turned real quick, and even though I didn't see him when I turned, I knew what I had seen. Um, he, he was very um, grayish in appearance, and his, he looked as if he was very angry and evil at the same time, which made me feel uneasy. It wasn't like a friendly, um, welcoming type of thing. It was like he was very angry, and, and, and he just uh, seemed like, I don't know, it, he, was, he looked like a corpse. He looked, just, he looked like a corpse with um, the way his skin tone was, and you couldn't see through him. He wasn't a, like a transparent or anything like that. But he, he didn't look like a person either. And the only thing they would think, his, his shirt, you could see the colorings on his shirt and his clothing. He was wearing gray pants and a shirt with a red flannel shirt. And he was wearing workman's boots. And he kind of resembled Jack Albertson from the actor in a way. But his look was just an evil, angry look. No matter which version of the bunk bed event you choose to follow, it was evident that things had started to escalate after the birth of Jackie's daughter, Samantha. One event that seems to be lacking from some of the recounting of the story are the dream events that Jackie is said to have experienced. These would be vivid dreams that she would experience where she would be a young man near the San Pedro Harbor. Within the dream, the man would be clubbed with a piece of lead piping and would eventually be drowned by the assailant. Jackie said that she could feel the water moving over her face as the young man's life force slowly ebbed away. These experiences seemed to take place in a kind of 1930s rendition of the harbour. It is roughly during this period we come to a section that is again mentioned in some but not in other accounts of this case. Due to this, I have been unable to definitively place it within the timeline. It could have a specific date, but I was unable to place it accurately myself. Jackie had been told by a friend of hers that she once moved into a new property, and on inspecting the attic area, discovered a sum of money. It was with this motivation that Jackie and her friend Chrissy decided to enter her own attic area in search of unclaimed cash. The hatch to the attic space was located in a small laundry area off from the main kitchen. The hatch was rather small, and in order to get up into it, one had to stand on top of the washing machine and lift themselves up using their arms into the space. As soon as Jackie looked into the dark attic area, she felt the uneasy feeling of eyes watching her, as if someone was right behind her, staring right at her from the dark void. And I didn't see anything. Now the attic was, was empty and it was dark and you couldn't see anything really. 
And I turned around again because I, I got this very uncomfortable feeling that something was definitely there and looking right at me. As Jackie looked towards the far right side of the attic, the ghastly visage of the head of a chubby-faced man started speeding towards her. Jackie stated that she did not even have time to react properly. Her legs buckled from under her and she fell completely out of the attic and off the washing machine. Jackie said that after the event, she couldn't walk properly or stand for a few minutes due to the shock. Dr Barry Taff, a Los Angeles parapsychologist, took a phone call from Jackie's friend Susan. Here she outlined the strange paranormal incidences that had been occurring in the property. Susan had seen Taff on the television, and it was this investigation and his work on the Entity case in the late 1970s that inspired her to call him. The Entity case was the investigation that examined claims of violent poltergeist activity in Culver City and formed the basis of the 1983 movie starring Barbara Hershey, also called The Entity. Susan stated that Jackie was scared of entering her own home and that there was a couple of children in the property that they all feared the worst for. So that August, Dr Barry Taff and a small crew of like-minded individuals assembled to investigate these experiences. The initial investigation team consisted of Dr Barry Taff, with his doctorate in parapsychology, with a minor in biomedical engineering, videographer slash cameraman Barry Conrad, and his friend and photographer Jeff Wheatcraft. There were other individuals that came on this first investigation, and their roles were mainly to man the video cameras, image intensifiers, infrared detectors, and other scientific equipment that had proved their worth during the entity investigation. Seventh of August, 1989, the first investigation. It is said that when the first team entered the home, they witnessed a most foul and putrid smell that seemed to fill the room and on inspection, they could not locate the source of. With all the windows open so that the smell could hopefully dissipate, Jackie stated that, when the investigative team came, uh, Barry Taft arrived first, and I began telling him the things that the things that were happening around the house. And shortly after that is when Barry Conrad and Jeff came, and they knocked on the door, and I was sitting on the couch, and I just said, "Come in." Barry Conrad was the first to come in, and he had this look on his face like a kid at Christmas time. I mean, like he was gonna open up a present like, you know, he was really looking forward to possibly seeing something. Well, Jeff comes in, and you could tell that he was very, very skeptical. All, and he, had, he almost was like he didn't even want to be there at that time. He would rather have been anyplace else but there. But um, that's, that's what I sensed from him anyway. Dr. Taff proceeded to ask Jackie all the preliminary questions so that he could be best acquainted with all the facts. It was during the questions that the team had their first brush with the auditory phenomenon that was taking place. 
they all heard a massive crashing sound coming from the attic space above them. No sooner had they realised what was happening, it was immediately followed by another crashing sound. The team scrambled to try and record the events as they happened, whilst Jackie told them that she was fully aware of what made the sound, and that it was the strange disembodied head that she had previously seen floating around the attic. She stated that since that day, she had not attempted to enter it again. With unease and trepidation, the team slowly inched open the attic door, with them adopting the same position of standing on the washing machine as Jackie had previously done. Once inside, the team found nothing inside the attic, but dust and a few copies of National Geographic. Jackie also told the team that whilst they were talking and just before the crashing from the attic, she had heard a low muffled voice, very similar to the sound she had heard countless times in the home. She went on further and stated that she had also had soda cans and various other objects flung at her on a regular basis and also recounted the tale of the strange liquid that seemed to seep through the walls. Dr. Taff was able to collect some samples of this viscous liquid that was gathering on the seals of the kitchen cupboards. After telling the team about the encounter with the old man sitting on the bunk bed, the team decided to conclude their investigation by taking photographs of Jackie's home and then carefully packed up their equipment. It was then that they realised that they did not have any shots of the interior of the attic and this task was assigned to Jeff Wheatcraft. Investigator Barry Conrad decided to go with Jeff and assist him in taking shots of the attic. It was whilst inside that a strange force seemed to take hold of Jeff's camera. After an incredibly brief struggle, the camera was snatched out of his hands. Jeff had also felt a large hand on his back, slowly applying pressure and start to force him down to the ground. The two men exited the attic, shaken and disturbed, and eventually the camera was found on the other side of the room, with the lens and camera detached from each other and in separate corners of the space. Jeff would later describe how, when he was left in the loft the first time, he could feel eyes following him around the room. It was on the second visit back up into the attic that he decided to start taking some photographs of the area behind him, whilst looking forward. It was during this action that the camera was snatched away from him. I started clicking off some photos. It was dark, totally dark. I fired first, I fired second, and just as I fired into the third frame, something pulled this camera from my hand stated Jeff on the video that was taken that night by the investigation team. Jackie recounted the event in an interview for the documentary on the haunting as... And they went back up into the attic, Barry ran out to his car to get his video equipment, which he didn't bring in right away, and they went back up to look for the camera. And it took quite a while to find it. There was nothing in the attic, it was, it was all dark but it took them like about 45 minutes to find the camera. There was three guys up there looking for it. 
and when they did find it, the camera was on one side and the lens was on the completely other side of the, of the attic. They were, were separated and, and taken apart. Jackie also stated that she could relate to the feeling of pressure that Jeff had felt on his back, as she too had experienced it previously. She also said that Jeff had witnessed a small glowing light moving through the attic space. This concluded the team's first night of investigating the San Pedro haunting, and Dr. Taff is quoted as saying, We kept hearing what sounded like a 200-pound rat running around the attic. Taff also has stated that everyone also experienced a sensation of overpressure, a strange feeling very similar to being underwater. In the 110-year formal history of psychical research, there's been less than a handful of people that have been deliberately harmed or injured in some way by this phenomenon. In fact, only one really well-established case. So this might be the second one. If it was not for one of our other associates present in the attic, Jeff might have been killed. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio. So feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week, we will be concluding our look at the San Pedro haunting. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Daniels. 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 And I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country where hauntings, curses, cryptids, and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember the wolves of weird. Oh, loose.